0: Hello out there, people! Again, this is Jim coming to you. I'm gonna do a podcast about. I don't know what the theme of this is gonna be. I, I feel like I keep starting off with themes, like I want it to be about this, and it 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 keeps making me uncomfortable. Like I just I, I feel this pressure to keep the conversation within those parameters, and it's too constricting. I like freeze up when I have to think of something to say. Um, one of the first. Things I recorded. Uh, the, the first like episode that I recorded, if you will, was like an hour and a half, two hours of me talking about my objections to the the notion that the 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 Bible is inerrant truth. And I, I a- afterwards I went back. <clears throat> And started listening to that, and I, I realized to myself that, that there's nobody out there who wants to listen to me, of all people, talk about that for 90 minutes. It, it wasn't even me making a case for that position, it was more or less relaying other people's points uh fr- from from existing sources. I don't know if I would know well enough, or am good enough at debate in order to make a case like that. So I, I, I certainly, did, I don't want to like talk about that, but there's a few things I could say to kick this one off. There's a story that I, I haven't, I haven't told it in a while, but the last time I was in Los Angeles, I got slapped. And I want to tell that story. So just kind of, to kind of set that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, so here, here, here's the the thing I, I, I a, a few years ago, I think it was early 2015. I got the sense that I was looking into self-help books. I was reading a lot of this, like, how do I be a better person? How do I improve my personality? So really I'm, I'm consulting a lot of things, reading a lot of, how do you be a better person sort of literature? How do you work on your character? You know, I, I really am trying to go deeper. Like that, that was the objection in Stephen Covey's like seven, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which admittedly I haven't read, but at the beginning of it, he says, the problem with stuff like Dale Carnegie is that it kind of just gives you tactics. It says, here's how you should act towards people. It's very, very easy to read it and kind of say, well, I, I could just act this way. I could just be insincere, and it kind of is a way of getting what I want. He-, he says, fundamentally, if you want to work on your character, work on your character. like Work on who you are. The actions will follow from that. Clean, clean the inside of the coffin, you know that that whole thing um so i it was around this like a lot of self-help literature is like it it treads a very fine line if if it doesn't spill over directly into christianity like there's there are lots of christian people writing books uh that that, of talk about here's how to be better norman vincent Peale's the power of positive thinking is probably the, the quintessential example from the 20th century uh I remember reading a book when I, when I was like about a year after that I was studying psychology. And I came across a book that was about something I don't remember it was uh I don't remember what the subject was. Some some sort of disf like read this book if you're feeling uh, anxious or something, and it was like the first five of the ten chapters were talking about anxiety and it was written by a psychologist and it very slowly seeped into. It's just slowly, bit by bit, started introducing Christian ideas, and like you, there, there's a father who loves you. I'm, I think they're very, very sneaky. Like that was the embodiment of what I don't like about this concept. Like if, if you're going to write a religious book, go ahead and just write that. Call it out in the introduction. Don't don't try and sneak it in. Like, I feel like you have to like come at people from the side and be de- indirect. But you know, the, the truth of the matter is, uh, at the time, I, I kind of, back in the, when I was reading the self-help stuff, trying to, to to improve myself, try to get better, try to get perspective on myself and figure out what it is to improve, uh, I, I was, up to that point in my life, I had kind of just had Christianity in the back of my mind. I thought, okay, I'm not going to worry about it now. When I, when I was younger, I was like, I'm going to punt on this question and not address it till later I'll, I'll figure it out at some point down the line when i was young i was like you have to get a degree get out build a career for yourself find a life that you can live that you want to live you know get other things settled in your life it seems like people tend to just sort of look for those answers later in life like closer to closer to the end people seek out religion more the spirituality sort of comes in the second half of life i think it's more important than so I was like, well, I'd like to figure this out. I'd like to know for myself where I fall on this. It's the kind of thing like if it came up in conversation, I would just sort of dodge the issue. I would say something noncommittal. committal If I'm talking to a Christian, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, probably. And if I'm talking to a non-believer, I'd be like, yeah, well, I'm not sure that's true. Probably not. Just very, very waffly. Like I'm not taking a stand. Uh, it, which I, I think is fine. People, I, people, I people, getting kind of frustrated. with me, like, "Why would you not have made that decision for yourself?" And I was like, "Well, at least I have the, the the presence of mind not to have made a decision." That, like, I know that I don't know. I think that's. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I think that that is a better position than to just say I've I've capriciously jumped to one conclusion or the other. But it, it, it's something that even even in high school when I was. I remember being in high school and kind of like reading Nietzsche. Uh just to kind of just, uh, because there's a whole bunch of stuff. Like you read Nietzsche, you just walk around with that book in your hands. It's kind of you know you're just you religious people are gonna see that and be annoyed. Like it's the guy who said God is dead. I mean what, <laughs> what what teenage boy wouldn't love to do that? What teenage boy isn't itching to just piss off the you know the people around him that are stuck up and uptight don't take yourself so seriously but even when i was like rebelling like listening to nine inch nails in high school like it wasn't like i actually believed that i was just i was adopting this um to kind of go go counter to be non-conformist or anti-conformist intentionally you know i was trying to teenagers are trying to differentiate themselves in terms of identity, that that was one way I was doing that. Just I'm going to take the anti-position to traditional religion. So I get to this point in my life and I was like, I think I need to actually make a decision. I need to know. This needs to be something. I need to go down this path and I don't know where I end up. I feel like somewhere in there there's a fork and I'm going to end up either... Knowing that I don't believe it, knowing that it's not for me, or I'm going to end up, it's going to end up being a significant part of my life. If it really is, there's some eternal afterlife, and where we go depends on how we behaved in this life, or what we did, what we chose to do. Then this, this is, of course, an important decision, and it's something I would have to start. So I was like, it's either going to be, need to be something that I need to know how to defend, or I know how to defend against it. It's going to have to be one or the other. I suppose there is some middle ground between those two, but roughly that was, I, I was like, I have to get to one of those two terminal points. And so I, I had no context. I knew nothing. You know, all I knew was what I had. It's, it's kind of like you, you're kind of familiar with what's in the Bible, with what Jesus said, whether or not you have made any effort to be, because it's just, it's it's kind of in the water. The things that he said, the expressions—they're just—they're just part of culture. They're just referenced in movies. People just throw them out there. You, don't, you only recognize where they came from if you knew, but you hear them. They're very much part of just literature. You really can't appreciate Shakespeare without having read the Bible. Um, so I started like reading, like those like. Bible quote a day books with the simplest possible thing. Like somebody says, here's a little quote, no context, and here's kind of what it means. I started reading like books written by you know, smaller books, you know, not, not, not challenging theology, but just here's kind of some interpretation of this, this one book. Uh, stuff I like Joyce Myers, that sort of thing. I tried to steer towards stuff that would actually have like a positive effect, like make me feel good and make me feel like happy. It would just give me some positivity, give me some sort of connect me with whatever inner well of 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 strength and happiness that people seem to have inside them that they, they, they use religion to draw upon. It kind of connects them to that. I felt that was important at the time. I felt I wanted to try and connect to that part of myself and, and energize myself with it. It it does work. Practicing the gratitude—that—that's one example. That sort of thing that really does help. I I would—I certainly can understand why it is people find their way to religion. They get there and they stay. I—I don't—I don't. If you don't dig that deeply, it can be very, very powerful. So yeah, I'm reading like the small books, like figure out. Okay, so you have. The old and the New Testament um, taking a very long time to set this up. I don't know how much it's worth it. yeah, I don't want this whole thing to be about this. I want to get this to get, get this I want to get past this and start talking about some other things this evening so here here is what i'll I'll truncate this. I ended up focusing on the Gospels, and I'll, I'll tell you why. And this is the point of view I would offer. Uh, somebody who's talking about the the literal inerrancy of, like, the Bible must be literal truth. It does not contain errors. You can easily point to passages in the Bible. It's like this passage says this, and then this other passage says something completely different. These There are two different positions that cannot be reconciled at all. There there are some you can kind of weasel your way through. But even accepting those, here's just, here's the way I looked at it. Okay, so if you accept that Jesus is the, he is the son of God or God, Or some weird hybrid of the two whatever you think this is this is what early Christianity debated so heavily but you know he's more than a man and he's meant to be revered he is the ideal he is perfection the person we are all supposed to emulate okay so you start with that you know that this Nazarene was born about 2,000 years ago he lived to be 33 he was ended up on the wrong side of the Roman law for one reason or another, and was crucified for sedition. And as the the story goes, he was dead for three days, and then uh, rose from the dead, was resurrected, kind of hung around uh, Judea for a little while longer, and then ascended into heaven, and that's the last anybody's seen of him. There's been a whole bunch of stuff that happened in the process. So you, you start with that as, okay, in case it isn't clear i don't think this is literally true however let's grant that it's literally true i'll start with that as i think that's true and this is what i was attempting to do when i was attempting to be a christian let's start with that as being the story because if, if i don't misunderstand it that is the story i think i think what i just gave was a very faithful Summary of the core narrative. Um, okay, so you start with that. So here's my question as I take apart the rest of the rest of the Bible. Um, so you have the four gospels, which are about Jesus. It seems to be like his life from four different vantage points, like a movie that will show you the same events happening, but from different people's perspectives. And so I think these are what you need to focus on. I think these are what, what is core. Uh, Like if you're going to get at what his message was, if you accept that he is the son of God, then he must be, you want to know what he said. He had a message for humanity. It came from God. It was meant to be given to us through him. The, The key thing is to figure out what that message was. So so the first question was, what was the message? Like, if we have the Gospels, what in there can we take to be accurate? Is it all accurate? That's, That's partly my question. And... I, I, there's, there's many, many levels at which this could possibly break down. Uh, and this, this is what I was wondering. This is why I started looking into history. I wanted to know, okay, not only w- what is written in there, but under what circumstances were these written? And who were they written by? Because you can start with, okay, there was, there, there was this, this man who came down and gave us the message. Okay. So first of all, there's, there is this translation from, this comes from some metaphysical divine authority who's not part of our universe, the Father. And it's it's transmitted down and it has to be put into human language and then articulated by Jesus of Nazareth. Like what he, what he means to teach us has to go through that. It has to, it has to be put into human language and transmitted that way. And if you, if you, if you sort of buy the God moves in mysterious ways, like we cannot understand him, his ways are not our ways, then I think you're, you're, you're immediately losing something there. You're taking some message of perfection from a divine realm and it's being transduced into human language by somebody in human form. And if you believe in the doctrine of original sin, if you believe in the fall, if you believe that man has a fallen nature and it's fundamentally imperfect, then human language must be imperfect. And this, this you're losing something immediately. Words are not going to convey it for you. You're not going to get it. There's something lost there. Okay. Uh, so Jesus transmits this to the people that are listening. You know, initially to his 12 disciples, some other people that are following him his following tends to grow he spreads this message around but he's he's transmitting these things orally so far as we know he, he did not write anything in his life he did not compose the gospels there's one passage in there in which he is writing in the dirt uh the woman taken in adultery and it that's we don't know what he wrote and that's the only thing that we know of so he he's going around transmitting this orally and Okay, then he's crucified, and then the stories persist. As far as we know, historically they're not written down for several decades. Uh, at least they're not written in the form of the Gospels we currently have for several decades. but the the Galilean peasants that Jesus was uh, associating with, they were more than likely speaking Aramaic. And so it, it doesn't seem like they were the stories were immediately written down, since they were written in Greek, and the people he had following him were probably illiterate peasants. So I think there is this, at the very least, there is this risk that you have, okay, Jesus transmits a message orally and it has to be received by other humans. And when you're communicating verbally, there's there's always a risk of the transmitter says something wrong, says something imperfectly, but there's also the notion that whatever you say, the words that enter the, the listener's ear are received imperfectly. They misunderstand the message. It gets encoded in their memory incorrectly. So I think right there you have a second, you have a second potential for error. Something could go wrong. Again, yeah, man is imperfect. Men are hearing this message and keeping it in, in mind for some amount of time before they write it down. It's not clear to me how, how long it was before they wrote it down, but it seems like th- this was transmitted orally. These stories got passed around for a matter of years before anybody wrote them down. But so I think there is a, a time gap, whether or not they passed and whether or not the Gospels were written secondhand, thirdhand, let's assume that they were written by their authors. I think there is some question as to whether or not Matthew actually wrote Matthew. Did Mark actually write Mark and so on, but assuming that it actually was them, then they didn't write them down immediately. They're, they're taking something that they'd heard in the past. And again, transmitting it in language and it wouldn't have been a word for word transcription. It would have been, they remembered it and then later they're going back and writing it down and from what we know about memory now human memory is of course incredibly infallible every time you pull something out of your memory banks you are writing it back you're changing it in some way like that that the what you hear from neuroscientists is that every read is a write. you cannot read something from your brain remember without sort of changing it. You put it back and it gets mutated somehow. This is why we, we, we remember someplace from our childhood. We go back and look at it. It looks completely different. We've thought about it over the years and it's just become something that it never actually was. So, all right, it gets written. So we have the, the four Gospels written in, in Greek and let's assume this happens very very early on by people who knew Jesus directly Th- then you have these have to get transmitted uh around like these have to be copied and so you don't have printing presses in, the, in these days there are not a whole lot of people who are literate and what you, what you get are Basically, scribes. You get people who, in order to copy these works, they have to sit down and copy them character by character. Many of them are illiterate, and they they don't know what they're writing. They'll make they'll make errors. If they if they if they can read and they happen to find something that they maybe don't like or disagree with, they could change it. Again, I. I I'm saying that the man is imperfect. Like the thing is the transmission here is happening through men. Like men are fallen men, basically, the argument here is that there is one human being who is infallible in human history that would be Jesus, right This is the story. and no other human being can possibly come close there's just there's, there's no way we can get there. so human beings are entrusted with transmitting God's word, right. So this is what's going on. You you have the copying of the Gospels over many years, generation to generation. And there are many things written about him. We know now that there were many books written that did not make it into the New Testament. We have the 27 books, but there there are dozens of other ones that we have since uncovered. Uh, There's a Gospel of Thomas. Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which we have some some fragment of. Uh, Gospel of uh, Philip, Philippe, I want to say. We have other apocalypses. Uh, Revelations is not the only end times book we have. And so again, you have you have many many things that were written down about Jesus, like this is the story of what he said, this is part of his message, and what makes it into the, to the Bible is, not, is just a curated selection of these writings, and, and who it was curated by, like the, what we know as the New Testament, the 27 books that comprise what we know as the New Testament, that was not decided upon. I'm not sure that ever was actually decided upon. There there was the Council of Nicaea about 300 years after Jesus's death. And that ends up ratifying the notion of the Trinity. And I believe that what makes it into the, to the Bible are, are the writings that are consistent with that doctrine. The Council of Nicaea is of course, Constantine trying to bring two opposing factions together. It's, a, it's meant to be a compromise. It's meant to unite the Roman Empire that's fractured along this question of uh, you know, Jesus, the nature of Jesus' divinity. Uh, it doesn't quite work. I think a the, the compromise is forced. It's kind of just grudgingly accepted, but it doesn't do anything to unify the Empire. Anyway, the, this is what Late fifty years later, we have the first written record of the list of the twenty-seven books that are now in the Bible. I don't know. I don't remember who wrote that. That's the, this is when it happens. So, the notion that three hundred years after Jesus, that there's a council of men, uh led by somebody who's uh, the head of the Roman Empire, Constantine, they're going to figure out. The correct interpretation of the divinity of Jesus. Okay. Again, you have the potential for error here. And how do we know that the the correct writings were adopted? How do we know that a bad one didn't sneak in? And some of the correct ones or accurate ones. How do we know that those weren't omitted? These decisions were all made by men long after Jesus was gone. And so this was the way I approached the problem. I was like, okay, if you want to be a good Christian, I'm trying to make some effort to sort this out. This this is where I started. This was the process that was going through my head. Like you have. You have the story. There was some message from two thousand years ago. It's been transmitted, generation upon generation, in various ways by, human beings who are incredibly, fallible. How exactly were you supposed to get to the core of what was actually said? How how can we know? What can we know is the question I had. This is the way I came at it from a very scientific kind of perspective, a historical, let's try and separate the wheat from the chaff. Which is maybe missing this. I, I don't know if you're, this may have been the wrong way to come at it um but i'm surprised at how how controversial this, this this position is um i personally don't think it's that controversial and i i don't think it's i i think it is generally consistent with what people believe i i believe that okay there is some truth we're supposed to get at this truth has been transmitted over a great amount of time to us we should be careful about not making a mistake about what we're meant to believe because th- there are there are a lot of men between us and Jesus temporally who as as their own for a power grab on their own part would have an incentive to to tweak these things and so you shouldn't just accept everything without scrutinizing it or questioning it so again this is this is not to say that this means Christianity isn't true. I'm saying the the problem here is the, the question of the literal truth of the Bible, the fact that it's inerrant, it contains no errors. If you tell me that there there was this man from Galilee who was the Son of God who was crucified by the Romans and was resurrected three days later, that's actually very, very easy for me to accept. Or it's it's I don't believe that, but it's easier for me to accept that than to believe that what was written down about him was done so perfectly and it's been transmitted over 2,000 years of history to us without any errors whatsoever. Believing that this thing has come to us without any errors is a much bigger leap of faith than to believe that, that somebody rose from the dead. In my mind, I have an easier time just Okay, just hand wave except the first one. Sure, yeah, some some guy came back to life in the olden times. Anyway, that's my story. That's the that's the question I have, and I'm I've never run that by anyone. It took me thirty minutes to get to that point. Wow. Anyway, so. One of the passages I like, this is one of my favorite passages, like like verses from from the gospels. It comes from John. I think it's chapter seven, verse seventeen. And the context for this is uh Jesus is is teaching in a synagogue. And afterwards people are kind of mulling around outside, talking to each other, like murmuring. This is, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Like this, uh, is this, could this be true? This doesn't seem right. What do you think? And so Jesus kind of comes out. He knows that they're all thinking this. They're all feeling skeptical. And he says, anyone here who does the will of God, who puts what I say into practice, will know whether what I say comes from God or whether or not I'm just speaking on my own behalf. just tucked away in there very casually it just it comes and goes very if you didn't you weren't paying attention you might miss it so we don't have to take anything on faith if we, we we can try this experimentally this is the thing that when the buddha was originally trying to seek some sort of spirituality trying to Attain when later he, he found enlightenment he was trying to practice hinduism and he was asking his guru who was teaching him all these principles and these precepts and these practices Have you ever tried these for yourself? And do you know that they work and and his hindu? I, I don't know what a, a, I don't know anything about hinduism. I think they're called gurus, but he said the, the guru said no actually I haven't I'm just this is what I was taught and I'm teaching it to you and so the Buddha thought This is not, I don't accept this. And so one of his first principles was taught his disciples, like anything I say, try it for yourself. See if it works. You shouldn't take anything on faith. Don't take what I say as any sort of, it's divine truth that must blindly be obeyed. He said, put it into practice in your own life. If it works for you, then do it. If it doesn't, don't do it. If you can tweak it a little bit and make it work for you, go ahead and do that. I'm probably completely butchering Buddhism now. But this passage in John sounds very much the same. He's saying, like, well, look, if you don't believe me, just try it. He, I, I, to be fair, he does not give you an out that says, if you try it and it doesn't work, then you can abandon the whole thing. He kind of just, I guess it's just the assumption is, if you try it, it's going to work. Trust me, just, just try it. And I, I this was this what I used. I said, okay, well, this is what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to put these things into practice and see exactly how it affects my life. Does it affect it positively? And so this is where I get to Los Angeles. This is where I get to the story that I alluded to in the beginning. Uh this is this is fall of two thousand fifteen. I've just I just broke up with my girlfriend in like twelve years. I'm I'm living with a friend of mine. Still in Santa Barbara. Uh, one of my friends who has been living in Antarctica, an old college friend, uh, his name is Max. Uh, he was flying into Los Angeles to spend a night or two with a friend of his and he was going to see a concert. He reached out to me and said, Hey, do you, do you want to come see this concert with me? Uh, I think it was John Bryan. And I was like, for sure, it'd be nice. I haven't seen, I haven't seen him in years. And, uh, it would be nice to get out of Santa Barbara and go down to LA for, 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 uh, you know, a night. Uh, so yeah, I was like, oh, sure, I'll see you this weekend. Uh, so I, I drove down there. Um, and his friend was a server at a restaurant so that we, we are standing outside. It's evening in l a shortly after dark before the concert, and we're waiting for Max's friend. I don't remember Max's friend's name. I will call him Max's friend uh we're waiting for Max's friend to his shift to end. He's done at the restaurant so we can the three of us go to the show um, so we're standing there on the street corner. I am uh smoking a cigarette and this group of guys walks by and the the ringleader the guy in front slaps me in the face as he walks by i'm standing against the wall and knocks the cigarette out of my mouth and it falls to the ground and rolls on the end of the street and the the four of them just kept walking by he did it was no like he did it it was like a drive-by slap <laughs> it's it's kind of ridiculous on the surface of it. It's like, like Austin Pow who throws a shoe, really? <laughs> um just kind of taken aback by it. Um anyway, so they, they can just continue past. They're about to go around the corner onto the main stretch. The restaurant's on a corner. And we're waiting on the on the side here. And the two of them who are trailing in the back, like of the five of them in this posse, like two of them double back after they've passed and they come up to me and they say, hey, uh, can we bum a cigarette? And of course I kind of squinted because I was like, the, the, the ringleader of your group just slapped me in the face. But I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm making an attempt to test these rules this this guidance if you will and i think most people are familiar with this i don't remember where it is in there but the the, the notion is if someone strikes you on the cheek offering the other like turning the other cheek quite literally this is now what i'm I'm faced with okay so i I take my pack of cigarettes open it up i have two left in the pack so i gave the two to these two guys. I gave one to each of them. They took them and, and scampered off back to their uh, their little group. Now, my friend Max got very, very uh, agitated by that. Max is looking at me like, why did you just give them your last two cigarettes? And I, I was like, they, they asked. He was like, but the guy slapped you in the face. Why would you why, why would you do that? And I, I, I said, I said, well, forgive. Trying forgiveness, you know. I didn't go on at length. I know I wasn't, I wasn't going to be high and mighty and tell him what was really going on in my head. But I just was like, you know, what would it really, what would it really count us? You know, how what would we gain by like getting antagonistic? Anyway, he, he was very, very... He seemed agitated by this, like almost visibly angry. Not just that I had been slapped, but that I had actually given my cigarettes away. In any case, I, I had another pack. Uh, so it, it wasn't that big of a deal. But really, really weird. Anyway, we ended up going to the, the concert. The concert was good. I enjoyed the music. Uh, there was... The only thing of note is that in in the restroom that evening in the, during the intermission, I ran into the actor who plays is the tall guy on Silicon Valley. I think he played Gabe in the office uh, anyway, he was there. I didn't say anything to him uh, but after the show, me. Max and Max's friend, and for the grammar sticklers out there among you, I'll rephrase: Max, Max's friend, and I are walking home later uh, down the street. Like we've we've left the theater, and we're on the same street that roughly we've been on before. The restaurants on the street. We're just a few blocks closer to home, and we we pass. This, this group of guys that are just kind of sitting against the, the, leaning against the wall. I don't know if it was the same group of guys, the same four or five. I, I really didn't pay attention to them after they passed. I didn't, I barely paid attention to the faces of the guys who came back and bummed the cigarettes from me. But right, they're standing just in front of, just before we come to one of those, uh, I don't know what you call it, but they put, a structure over the sidewalk. There's like a plank on the front. When a building is under construction, I'll put this up, kind of a metal skeleton, a wooden plank on the front. You have to go under it. So it's it's pretty narrow. So I go on the outside. I'm like, I'm going to pass this on the street. I'm not going under this thing. Uh, one of the people in this group that's standing against the wall, uh, just before we enter this underpass, we go under this thing, uh, slaps my friend, Max. It's Max kind of just keeps walking, keeps, and he just starts going, walking underneath this thing. I'm kind of alongside him on the outside, like, on the sidewalk closest to the street. He's closer to the building and he's kind of like, he doesn't stop and turn around and, and get angry right away. He kind of keeps walking and he's, he's trying to figure out how to react. And, and somebody calls after him and asks a question and and at this point he turns around and he says, "Why did you slap me and then one of the, one of the friends of this guy who who asked the question steps up and says, "Hey, my friend just asked you a question. You know, why don't you answer it with no disrespect and you know, my Max is just, you see him, he's fuming, he's like, Why did you slap me? He was no reason to slap me. What, what the hell was that for? He's understandably getting angry. And this is this is just escalating. They're kind of like, We asked you a question, you didn't answer it. He's like, Well, I don't owe you an answer, you just slapped me. Like, this is becoming more and more heated. Yeah, at this point, I, I don't know where. Max's friend is, I've, I've become aware that he's, he's missing. But I'm very focused on this heated exchange which is happening. And it, Max and his, the person who's confronting him, they barely seem like they're aware of me. I'm just kind of standing here watching this. I'm not even sure that they're aware that we're together. But anyway, the guy who slapped max is is now in his face and he's he's just like slapping max and max is just like trying not to strike back he he's he's like one of the best dudes i've ever known he's the most non-violent guy i guess i guess i've seen him do things um but he he's not a fighter there's he's a very very peaceful guy Definitely close, closest thing to a hippie, but not actually being a hippie. Um, great guy. But so he, he's, he's getting angry. He's obviously frustrated because this guy is, is slapping him. And they're trying to make it out like he's a bad guy because he's not answering their question. And I'm watching this and I'm trying to think, okay, what do I do now? Like that this is not going anywhere good. I, I don't think I can step in and step between them and say, hey, 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 let's just cool off. Like I feel like trying to diffuse the situation that way is not going to do it. Just have a gut sense of that. Stepping in and escalating the conflict on behalf of Max also doesn't seem like it's quite the right move. And if it is, I have to figure out how to do it. So As this is racing through my head, as I'm trying to figure out how do you, how do you move past this? What, what exactly, what, what is my next move? I felt something hit me in the face. Now I thought somebody had thrown something at me, uh, but I felt it hit me in the face. It struck me and it, it fell down off of my face. And I had my hands up, like kind of a defensive stance. Like I'm ready for action. And the thing fell onto my wrist and it was a watch. It it was like somebody's watch had had hit me in the face and fell down onto my wrist and landed as though it was now latched onto my wrist. It landed just perfectly, so it looked like I was wearing it, but it wasn't clasped. I just kind of looked at it numbly, and I looked up, and I realized the guy who was slapping Max, this fellow who was up in his face, his watch just came undone, flew off, and hit me in the face while he was slapping Max. And so I was like, okay, I got something to try. So I took the watch and I said, hey, I got this guy's attention. And Max and this guy look over at me and I said, I think this is yours. And he got very angry initially. He said, what are you doing with my watch? How did you get my watch? And I said, it just hit me in the face. I think it flew off your wrist by accident. Uh, here it is. Take it back. And everything just immediately, that was the end of it. He softened, took his watch, and one of his friends was kind of like, hey, man, you're all right. And another guy in the background said, like, yeah, you can hang with us anytime. And it was just Max and I kind of just started walking away. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this, this turn the other cheek stuff. That really works. Uh, who knows what that could have turned into if that hadn't happened? But who, who slaps somebody, really? Who does that? Anyway, so Max's friend is gone. We're aware that we don't know where he is. Uh, we start looking around for him. And we realize that he he's... He's flagged down a police car in the middle of the street that we're on. And he's talking to the police officer. And what was it? We heard him like yell. No, he didn't yell. He came over and he said he told the cops about. Actually, it's been so long. Let me make sure I don't get the. What was it? I think he, he, he yelled. He, he yelled at the police car once he had flagged it down so that everyone on the street could hear. These guys are slapping my friend. They're assaulting him. You need to arrest them. He yells this to the cops, and it's very, very visible. Or Sorry, very, very audible to, to everyone on the street. And this is, as I mentioned, a very busy Saturday night. There's a lot of foot traffic on the street. It turns out like this group of guys who were slapping my friend Max, it was not just the four or five of them. Apparently they were part of a crew that that they were just all over that, the sidewalks on that street. There was a lot of them. They were all part of the same group. And so... The cop is making some kind of maneuver to try and pull over so he can address the situation. And this street full of people that Max's friend has just openly turned the cops on, they are suddenly back focused on us. They are like, the three of them, get them. And so the three of us just turned around and bolted. We ran as fast as we could until we got back to... At home. We kind of took, got off the stretch and um, got off the main street. Tried to like be clever about losing them the way just you know three suburban nerds would be trying to ditch some. Yeah, that that was a crazy, that was a crazy story. I have a friend who really liked that story. Like I, when I came back to Santa Barbara after that, I told him that story, and he thought that was the funniest thing. From that point forward, whenever I, I would I would walk into the room when he was drinking, like he'd be sitting around having some beers with his buddies, they're playing video games. Like it just came to he would see me and be like, "Hey, Jim, you have to tell that story about the time you got slapped in L.A." Anyway, yeah. So, turn the other cheek. Uh, that, uh, that stuff works. And yet, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And so on. Anyway, yeah, Los Angeles. I spent, I lived in Santa Barbara for about eight years. And I really tried to avoid going down to Los Angeles as much as I could. The traffic is just as bad as as people complain about. And the conversations you have with people who are doing nothing but complaining about the traffic, those are just as bad as the traffic. (laughs) It's the thing. I actually wouldn't mind having a go at living there. It's one of those cities that I I used to hate the idea of living in a large city, especially one with that much traffic. I guess if you could if you could rig it so you really don't have to drive, if you could just walk, public transit everywhere, if if your job was not that far from you, I think it'd be fun to live in LA for like a few years just to get the experience. Well, last time I was there, I went to. I guess I have been there since this this getting slapped story. I went there, I, I went there once since I went there and went to Venice Beach, which is ah, that's absolutely gorgeous. Oh man. It's like, a, it's like a beach with character. There's a lot of things going on. The beaches in Santa Barbara were wonderful. But they they were they were just pristine and clean. There's not a whole lot going on. It's a very, very sleepy town. It's a beautiful town, but it's the by nine forty five at night, everyone is asleep. There is nothing going on. I remember I, I had a friend in Santa Barbara who I was okay with it because I I was I was dating someone pretty much the entire time I lived in Santa Barbara. I was a, pretty much just an adult. I was effectively married, but I had, I had a single friend who was like, "This place is boring. Like everything shuts down so early." I was like, "Really? Is that true?" And I was like, "Well, I guess if you're a morning person, it, it's good. But if you're if you're looking for nightlife, there is nothing in Santa Barbara. It is there is what? Okay, so I I can give you an interesting story. This is. So I'll preface this by saying this is how I know people have the hashtag believe women. We should listen to women who have sexual assault stories. I I, I don't need to prove this to anyone. I, I, I believe this to be true. I, if you don't believe it, I, I'm not sure this is going to speak to you, but I know this is factual because Okay, so I'm I'm not a great looking dude, but I am tall and slim. I I fall somewhere above average on the, I don't know where, how attractive I am, but I I do get attention. Um, As when I was in my 20s, actually, I mean, I was dating in my 20s. I wasn't really paying attention, but I used to walk into a room and sometimes one or two women would look over at me just reflexively. And I used to feel really insecure about this. It's like, what's wrong with me? Why are, they, why are they staring? Why are they people looking at me? Is it something on my face? I think they were just like looking to look. But anyway, the story I have here is there, there, there is one club in Santa Barbara that is open kind of late. If you're, if you're looking for, like, there is a, a strip club. Called the Spearmint Rhino, I never went there, but there is kind of something that's not quite a strip club. It's more of a bar, just a seedy place called the Wildcat. Colloquially, people called it the Shitty Kitty. Uh, but but I had a friend who came into town. He was like, "So is there a gay bar here?" I was like, "No, this is a town of maybe eighty thousand people. There is not a there is not a gay bar. There's not enough gay people to to merit having an entire." bar just dedicated to that however there is the wildcat and the wildcat has a gay night one night a week and i learned very early on which night was gay night because on that night i would walk by it and I, I learned very very quickly not to walk by it when it was getting out this this on sunday night when people were pouring out of there loaded you don't want to be caught in that crossfire because i i would get hit on people would be very very aggressive and the story I'm thinking of is there There was one night where I was walking home and some guy followed me I, I was very very clear with him like look I'm in a relationship I am straight I'm heading home to be in bed with my girlfriend like this 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 is not going to happen whatever it you is you're, you're chasing no no he was it, I, I walked around, I, the thing is, I started heading towards home, kind of hoping that this would, this would diffuse. It didn't. And I got close enough to home, I was like, I, I can't, so I, I just started walking in circles. Like I, I took, I, I, I didn't, I never went right past my place. I just basically kept one, two, three blocks radius around my place, but just kept moving, let this guy follow me. And eventually he caught on and was like, you're, walking in circles. You don't want me to know where you live, do you? I was like, no, I don't want you to. You're just some guy who like started following me home from the bar, like tried to grope me. And I'm telling you, no, this is not going to happen. I don't want you I don't know you. I don't want you knowing where I live. So anyway, this went on for a while. I ended up stopping on a street corner. We talked for like 30 minutes. I'm like, I don't know what I can say to persuade you but this, this is not going to happen. Whatever whatever you think, whatever fun time you're, you're angling for. And I, that, that was the Sunday night. The next day, the next Monday, I was going to start like, the last job I had in Santa Barbara. Like It was the first real engineering job I'd ever gotten hired to do. My first day at that job was the next morning. And I remember being in the HR office with the lady and she's giving me the sexual harassment speech she's reading from the manual she's saying like look bottom line is nobody should ever be made to feel uncomfortable people should be respected given the right boundaries and I was like I am right there with you I am I was up way too late last night I didn't say any of this but I'm thinking to myself I was up way too late last night because some guy followed me home tried to sexually accost me uh like I'm totally with you. You, don't, you you don't know how on board I am with what you are saying. So anyway, this is how I. This has never happened. Like there's never been a woman who's done this. I've had women hit on me. None of them have ever done anything like this, and I certainly wouldn't. I don't believe it's like this happened because this guy was gay. It happened because he's a guy, because that's what guys do. At least I had, like, half a foot on this guy. He was not that big. I can't imagine. If you're getting followed home by guys like that who are just aggressively trying to get you to sleep with them, who won't let you just walk home, and they're bigger than you, I've thought about this too. i like what if, what if I was a, like if I woke up tomorrow and I was a woman? I'm like a foot shorter, I'm very petite something, make up a fantasy. If if I went out into the world there would be people wolf whistling at me, like guys like hitting on me, thinking that if I looked at them it means that I'm interested, and that they're somehow entitled to some attention from me. That I—I I know guys think this. I find it. I find it contemptible. I think it might be biological, but really I think we can be better as people. I don't think there's any need for it. I think you can still get your rocks off without being this way. I assume, but, but if, if I woke up in that predicament, if that was suddenly my reality, I don't think I would leave my place. I would not go out into public. I don't know how long I would be. I would just be scared. I'd have to, I'd have to like get used to it and really work up the nerve to go out in a world full of men who would be looking at me that way and like wanting to overpower me just because of some carnal gut instinct. I, I just have to draw, I, I don't know what it's like. I can't actually say from experience what it's like. That's the point. I, I don't know how bad it actually is. There's no way I can know how bad it actually is, but, it, it's, it's, but I do remember this situation where there's some guy following me home who will not let up. And anyway, I, I think if he, if he had had the ability to, he may have overpowered me. Like, look, this is going to happen. He was very, very insistent. I, I two hours, two and a half hours of just uh, Anyway, so yeah, that's that's Santa Barbara. There's one there's one very seedy bar slash nightclub. Yeah, a wildcat, the shitty kitty. I'll tell you, man, yeah, there's definitely no definitely no biblical lesson there. We're very, very far away from the Bible now <laughs> uh, so the pandemic the latest news what i what I heard earlier today, what I read is that there was apparently an outbreak of coronavirus at one of the homeless shelters in San francisco, i think t- t- towards the south. There have been very, very few cases. It's been a month, at least a month since the first one was reported, And I think we've gotten up to 500 cases. Like it's been progressing very, very slowly. Whatever we're doing is is working. It's being, it's very, very effective. It it sounds like there were a hundred new cases that were found in the last day or two at this one location. And I, I've heard that things are very, very bad in, in the tenderloin. The tenderloin is, I, I remember walking through the tenderloin. I was talking to my mom on the phone. I was like, hey, mom, you know, I happen to be walking through the one part of San Francisco that if I'm going to get stabbed, it's going to happen here. That is perhaps overstating it. It's, it's probably, probably, probably shouldn't have said that to my mom. Mom, if you're listening, sorry. But that that is the seedy part. That is where you have people openly doing drugs. You have people, People just homeless on the street everywhere. There are tents. Like people, the entire place just smells like urine. Like it's not a good part of. But the bad parts of San Francisco, most of it is concentrated there. You have like South San Francisco, and there are industrial parts of there where you, have scrap, you know, scrap, like automobile scrapyards, that sort of thing. This is the one part of the city that's just. It, it seems like all the bad stuff is just concentrated there. It's just the nucleus of urban decay all the worst elements of human behavior. I was reading about this. This is apparently, this is a bad situation. The homelessness in San, San Francisco, I wonder if we take any lessons away from this, from this pandemic about homelessness, because that a hundred cases in one day, it was 10 of the people were, were people working at the homeless shelter. That That is in this kind of situation where you have a pandemic, that's when you, you homelessness becomes a problem. Just wandering the streets. They're living in very close contact with each other. They're not really informed about what's going on. I, I, I mean, I, I think they probably are, but they're probably not all of sound mind to know. Probably some schizophrenia, there's mental illness there. So it may not be everybody observes things correctly even if they do know, but some, some of them don't know that they haven't been clearly communicated to. If, if it gets into that population, it could, it, it could conceivably spread to a lot of people. A lot of people could be infected by that. And that would, that would be a vulnerable part of the population, even if you're not diabetic or elderly. And some of the people living on the streets in that part of town, they surely are. It would not be good. People have been talking about the homeless situation being a problem in San Francisco for a long time. This is this is exactly when you want to have dealt with that problem already. I have heard that, that San Francisco has been, there have been people like the Mostoni Center like stepped up and said, look, we, we have hotel rooms. We're, we're not, nobody's coming to visit right now. So we basically have them. You can just use them, like put up homeless people in them. And I think that's being done. I think it's only for homeless people who have positively tested for coronavirus. I think they're trying to line it. Last I heard, they're trying to line it up so that they they can put more uninfected homeless people just so that it's contained. They are trying to address this problem. They're trying to work with hotel owners and make arrangements for this sort of thing. And hotel owners have have also donated their, their rooms for health workers. So, so if you are a health worker, you're on the front lines and you're, you're dealing with this like in a hospital, you don't have to go home to your family every night. You, you, you can go into a hotel room so you're not going home and infecting your children. I think that, that, that's incredibly small. I hope that is happening in every city. I haven't heard what other cities are doing, but I'm very, very impressed with what San Francisco has been doing. I'm very, very grateful that we have people that seem to be rationally Thinking it through and taking the steps to keep everyone as safe as possible. Yeah. Say what you want to about San Francisco. It's not all bad. It's not all just being eaten by tech. It's not all greed and gentrification. Yeah, there's some of that. There's some of that everywhere. I was talking about this before in an earlier an earlier point, but I, I, I like the fact that there, there seem to be some trades that are making a comeback. Like I use the example of Budweiser. Originally Budweiser was just like some people brewing beer and it kind of grew into this national brand, this international brand. And it, at some point it just morphs into this. Maybe you have some, some specialized chemists working at the headquarters, like how do we put lime into this stuff? But for the most part, if you're working for Budweiser, you're basically just some factory worker. You're blue collar, you're hauling grain around the floor. It becomes this large scale industrial process. Not a whole lot to that. And, but there's a lot of industries like that where you have like something that is a commodity that is being produced by a few major companies and people are figuring out how to open up independent stores and shops like microbreweries, like, like make, take something that is generally standardized and commoditized and like make it special. Like make it, be a home brewer, you know, and open a microbrewery and be an artisanal craft brewer or an artisanal craft roaster or a butcher. You know, Younger people are embracing this as a matter of pride. It's not just some menial job you could get. It is something you can put a very unique spin on and charge a premium for doing so. And it's it's kind of, I like the idea of being able to do that. I'm not sure what venue I would enter. I feel like that used to be more common though. Like things have kind of consolidated into large organizations that control any industry. Like the the idea of being a cobbler. I don't know if I would like that in particular. But just as an example, if I, if I had a little, if I could have a little shop somewhere, and my job is to fix people's shoes. And I just know the people in that community, and they they show up and say, "Hey, here are my my shoes broke. I'm not just gonna throw them away and get a new pair. I'd like you to fix these. And I've gotta I've gotta do what the cobbler does and uh, fix the shoes. I'm kind of like building rapport with the people that I'm, I'm fixing their shoes, and it's just I'm part of the community for a long time. It's just it's just what I do." And there's no, there's no like intention on my part of, you know, I hire other cobblers, and I figure out how to open up other shoe stores in other cities. Like I figure out how to scale this operation. It's just, no, I'm just going to do the one thing exceptionally well in the one place, and that's that's just what I'm going to do. That seems to have declined, and there, I think a lot of things wouldn't come back like that. Like, why would anybody go? Pay a lot of money for a nice pair of shoes and then when that pair of shoes breaks why would you not just replace them shoes are not really made to be fixed for example i also cited the example of a bookstore like any like a, any average book that you're getting from a manufacturer or some publisher it's going to be the same if you go online or to a big box store like barnes and noble or if you go to an independent bookstore, it's effectively the same thing you're getting at the same price. It's actually cheaper online. But I do wish you could, there were more things you could do that with. Beer is an easy one because people brewing your own beer and brewing something good, learning how to do that, that's accessible to people. You need to have capital to open a brewery, but you could you could become good at that. I, ha- I had a friend in Santa Barbara. He was a designer, and he used to do work for clients. and He brewed his own beer. He showed me how he he did it. He lived in this small little apartment, but he had this this setup under the sink in his kitchen, and he just would would brew beer. and He would show up at his to his clients say like Hey, you know, let's talk the work I'm going to do for you. And he would take a six pack of his own hand brewed beer. And that that would be like his his token thing, he'd give out. I always thought that was so cool. It, it, in terms of like something you're gonna make yourself. I had a coworker that used to make uh cupcakes, and all these gluten free treats, and she would bring them, and they're absolutely delicious. I I hope she opens up a cupcake store. She always talked about opening up a bakery. And making like a gluten free bakery and making a, a business out of it. Yeah, I'm too practical. It doesn't scale. You think about a business where you're you're producing a product or offering a service. Immediately, my mind goes to well, you can't you can't scale that. Typical software guy. I'm always thinking like, okay, so if you you write a piece of software, you can you can sell it to as many people as you can have, as you can sell it to who find it useful and who are willing to pay for it. And software is something people need on a recurring basis if you manage to build the right thing, generate the right business model, offer the right value. It almost feels pathological. It's like I, It's been so long since I even sat down and said, would I enjoy opening up a shoe shop? Just a priori, I know I dismissed the idea. one of my favorite philosophers from the enlightenment his name is uh, baruch de spinoza the other podcast i did the one about the bible was actually about one of the works that he wrote he wrote like the first textual exegesis of the hebrew bible he was he was a jew who got into trouble with his congregation very early on and was booted out of where he lived not just the church but the community he had to move away to another country uh, probably because he was raising questions you're not supposed to ask, making points. His first book was basically pointing out, if you look at the Hebrew of the Hebrew Bible, it's riddled with inconsistencies and errors. And if you just apply common sense to it, conjecture, it's, it's very, very difficult to see how this could be the literal word of God. He is not an atheist. I think his position was, this is still valuable. It's a book that's survived for thousands of years, so don't dismiss it. But he, he was kind of like, don't be dogmatic. There's no reason for that. If, if you're interested in it, that's probably the one I would It's Spinoza, not The Ethics, which is almost impossible to read for anyone who doesn't have a Ph.D. in philosophy, but uh, his, his earlier work. Yeah, religion is one thing I can talk about for way too long. I try not to, I know, I try not to be too obvious about it because i I do take exception to the to the claims that Christians make, but I take the same kind of exception to what the the new atheists claim I think if I had to pick a side I would pick I would side with Richard Dawkins against somebody who's fundamentally religious, but I, I I wouldn't fall neatly into either camp. I certainly don't use either label to describe myself it seems like the, the debate was the same back in the, in the days of the ancient Greeks it's, it's interesting people know about Democritus who was the original atomist he, he devised the theory of atoms uh, the notion that like matter is at, at its base composed of small indivisible units that are assembled together and that there's, there's empty space between them between objects, Epicurus, most of whose work hasn't survived largely because he was, he was like Democritus a materialist. I think a lot of what he wrote would have been directly in contradiction to what theologians were preaching. Uh, It would have been contrary to what Plato and Aristotle would have written. He, he believed in the atomic theory. And we have some sense of what he wrote because we have some fragments that other people quoted. And we do have Lucretius's... He was a Roman poet. Lucretius, the nature of things, which makes heavy reference to the writings of Epicurus. But Epicurus believed in the atomic theory. He believed that there were atoms and he believed that they were basically falling through space. But there, were, there was a random wiggle to them. Like they would oscillate at random times, like they would zip back and forth laterally in a, in a chaotic, random way. And this is how they ended up bundling together. Like they would collide with each other and form clumps. And this is how the worlds were formed. The things we see in the sky. The sky. I don't. I don't know if he believed that the stars were far away clumps of, of stuff. But he believed matter. Came together like that, which is interesting because that that kind of anticipates quantum theory, like the notion that there is a randomness at the at the most basic level, the subatomic level. Like there's there's an indeterminacy about exactly where an electron is. You have uh, you have an indeterminate, like a probability cloud surrounding the center. You don't know where it is until you measure it. And I'm trying to remember who it was. There was was another pre-Socratic philosopher who looked at the animal kingdom and assumed that so nature or the gods, I don't remember what his origin story was, but they created many different variations of things. And the variations that were not successful at surviving basically died off. The ones that were not fit to live, if you had a human being with two heads or a horse with too many legs, like there were generally a, initially there were a bunch of forms that were ill adapted and they died off and what we see are the well adapted uh, versions of things the ones that are are best adapted to their environment.'m not sure you you didn't make that argument exactly, but it was. If you look at it, you kind of say, well, that is basically evolutionary theory in embryo. He certainly didn't say anything about organisms mutating into each other, us having a common ancestor. Like he, but he anticipated Darwin, roughly speaking, in very inexact terms, by about 2,300 years. It's funny how much of modern science is, is there. Like, I guess it's obvious there's a lot of pre-Socratic stuff. And just stuff from the Greeks in general. And it, it's impressive when you look at the stuff that happened to end up being true. They, they were just guessing; it's not like they knew, and they could have very easily been wrong. Yeah, but funny that you start with you start with nothing. You just try and figure. We we have to understand how this all works. What is matter made of? I I remember this, so my dad posed Zeno's paradox to me. My dad was a math guy, he was a math teacher. He majored in math. So he posed Zeno's paradox, which says something roughly like this. And this was when I was maybe 11 or 12. Uh, He said, so imagine you're trying to get to the wall. So you move towards the wall and you have the distance. And then what you do moving forward is you have the distance again. So each time you're dividing the amount of distance between you and the wall by two. And if this is all you can do, how do you ever reach the wall? How is it you can ever get to the wall? How is it you can ever touch it? He was, like, he was like posing this to me, like, what is a 12 year old going to do with this? I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, you could just overshoot the wall. If all you can do is have the distance, just pretend you're trying to reach a place that is twice as far away from you as the wall and you'll hit the wall and route to it. He seemed very, very amused by that answer. Like oh, that's, that's just so patently obvious. Not like I'm all that clever. As long as we're on the subject of old Greek philosophy, I, I have been, in the last few years, I've been reading the work of the Stoics. And they, the Stoicism seems to be getting a lot of attention. I've seen books about it. There's a very popular book by Ryan Holiday. Which I think he has a few of them, but they cover the Stoic philosophy. And the Stoic philosophy would be Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca. It was a school originally founded by Zeno, not the same Zeno of Zeno's Paradox. This was actually a different Zeno. But Zeno was, I think, the original guy who came up with the notion of Stoicism. And people have people have been turning to it as kind of like, okay, they've become disillusioned with Christianity. They can't believe it anymore, and they're looking for some sort of value system or guidance for how to live, how to live your life. And to, to be honest, this is a very effective system. I, I think if you're talking mental health right now, this is obviously a crazy moment to be living through, like what's going on right now. And I, I, I hope that people are finding coping mechanisms that work for them. Um, I, I, I've, I've heard that calls to suicide hotlines in San Francisco are up are something like 30% since this started. I think the pressure is probably getting to some people. But anyway, the, the guy who invented cognitive therapy, which is one of the precursors to cognitive behavioral therapy, uh was a guy named, by the name of Aaron Beck, and he was trying to treat depression. And he was, he was interested in the notion of, okay, you have, obviously you have emotions, negative or positive, that influence thought. His question was, could you go the other way? His question was, could you have thoughts? influence emotions if you teach people how to control their thoughts would it positively influence their emotions and he mentioned he got this idea directly from the Stoics from Epictetus and Aurelius this was very much their idea you should control what you think guard your reaction to things Shakespeare said there's nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so This was originally concisely stated by Epictetus very well. Just, it, it's, it's not the thing that happens to you that's, this, that disturbs you. It is your reaction to it, your interpretation of it. So perception is not reality. If you can control your perception of reality, you can control your reaction to your perception. There's this thing that stands between you and your reaction to the outside world. Learn how to control that, be mindful of that. It's a very, very good system. If it's, you wanna read philosophy instead of trying to wade through a bunch of psychology books by people telling you how to cope with depression. Um, I can't say I've read very much of that, but if you read the philosophy of the Stoics, um, it, it's very, very good. It offers good advice. Um, it managed to survive, I think, because there are passages in there in which they're talking about the gods. They, they very much believed in the, um, the, the Greek pantheon. They talk about Zeus. They, they make references to you know Greek mythology and those stories. They're using those as a reference point. The way, you know, self-help authors would use Christianity as kind of a reference point. Like, for example, you know, we draw upon this story to to illustrate the point. But, you know, it, it's basically like if the gods will, it must be good Like, just accept that some things are going to happen outside of your control and that there's an overall purpose to it. In terms of, like, religious... In, like, leanings inside of Epictetus and Aurelius, that was basically it. Like, there, everything happens for a reason. And the reason has something to do with the will of the gods. And there's a good plan, a broad one. We just can't know what that is. Just accept that that's, everything that happens is for the best overall. Try not to worry about it. Much easier said than done, but it is a good way of calming your anxious mind. And it's very, very easy to read, too. I I, I tell people about this like they're, they're the Stoics, or the ancient Greek philosophy, and I think people imagine Aristotle and Plato. I have so much trouble reading that stuff. I, have, I do actually enjoy, in some perverse sick way reading like stuff like plato and aristotle but it is hard it is difficult it's hard to know what they mean and even if you do unscramble the meaning it's like well how how does that apply to me that can't possibly be a real suggestion a lot to dig through the thing about epictetus his Discourses and his Handbook for Living. And Aurelius has one called, it's the Confessions, is his seminal work. It's his only work that we have. That stuff is actually very, very easy to read. I, I was having dinner with a friend of mine, and she was visiting from out of town, and I gave her a copy of Epictetus's uh, Handbook for Living and she opened it up and there, there was just like one sentence on one of the pages. Uh, that, that was all it was. It's just very, very short little bursts of advice is the format of this book. And she read it and she was like, that, that sounds like it could have been written like this year. Somebody could have written that now. She was like, is this accurately translated? Is this like a, a, a like a, a quotations book? I was like, no, that's just, this, this is what it is. It's very little bits of philosophy that even though they were written close to 2,000 years ago, they're still remarkably applicable. They, they still have relevancy today. So it's not as though you have to wade through a bunch of really esoteric Greek ideas. It's not like Socrates is arguing endlessly with some some person. And maybe maybe you hope within... 50 pages they'll, they'll finally reach a point it's, it, it's actually very accessible readable stuff and it's very easy to just take the simplicity of the meaning for what it is and say you know that's good advice let me, let me reflect on that maybe it's not as complicated maybe I'm overthinking what is it, whatever is bothering me I think there's value in that I think simplicity is definitely underrated I think that we overlook the obvious too easily it's too easy to look at something that's obvious and say, well, of course I know that. And when you start taking it for granted that good advice is good advice. You start becoming blind to it and you stop following it. That's my problem. I get inured to it. It's like getting in a hot tub and just getting used to it. You really got to force yourself to pay attention to, to, to good advice. If you know it's true. Make sure that you know it's true. Anyway, I guess I can wrap this one up. I'm getting up on uh, 90 minutes. These things are much longer than I intend them to be. I sit down. I'm like, maybe I should keep this one to 30 minutes and just cut it off. But for some reason, it just I go until my, my microphone and headphones, just the battery wears down. I have to recharge it. I'm trying to figure out how useful this is. It felt very therapeutic the first day or two that I sat down and started just dictating these thoughts into my phone. I'm not putting all of them online. There's some I'm keeping just for myself. But getting these out, it felt really good the last couple days. Today, it's starting to feel like this is just something I'm doing to to waste time. Like I'm starting to like fall back into the funk. That originally got me trying new things and it ended up with me doing this. I wonder if it's just I have to like keep doing novel things. If I, if I pick any one thing, if I pick any one author to read, if I just start doing it day by day, it eventually just stops having like a novel effect on me. Like pe- people say one thing to keep yourself sane during this time is to have a routine. Make sure you wake up at the same time, always do the same thing in the morning. I have elements of that. Like I always make my coffee. I'm always, there are things that I do that kind of structure the day, but I feel like in broad strokes, I need the opposite. I need to like not do the same thing every day. I can't sit at my desk working at the computer for five days and then take two days off. And like maybe I do work on the computer one day then I go outside and walk on my patio for another day, listen to an audiobook or a podcast, and just sit back and watch some TV on another day. Maybe read a book out outside in a chair the next day or mix up these elements from day to day. I feel like just doing the same thing over and over again, it eventually loses its effect on me. Once it becomes routine, my brain kind of like starts to remember, oh yeah, this is the situation we're in. We haven't been out really of this place. I haven't gone anywhere and done anything normal in like a month and a half. Ugh, it's nuts. Anyway, as always, uh, I, I hope whoever you are out there, I hope you have enjoyed listening to this. I hope that you are healthy and continue to be. So I hope your situation remains stable you're staying sane in the meantime and uh, yeah hang in there we're going to get through this we're going to get through this if it seems bad just yeah don't lose hope I am really terrible at giving motivational speeches I will just say stay well Be excellent to each other. This is Jim, signing off. Cheers.